Well, thank you, worship team, and good morning. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew 16 this morning. Matthew 16, or page 797. Try to get your uh, eyes on a copy of the Scripture one way or another this morning. When I go for a walk or do the treadmill at the Y or try to eat healthy, I have to admit, most of the time I'm just kind of trying to stay a little more healthy for myself. I want to enjoy more things, enjoy them longer, and so, you know, try to do something average healthy. But if I'm honest and thinking a little bit more clearly, my health affects others. My health affects my wife Priscilla, her kids, grandkids, you guys. And so I need to be thinking about me in a larger sense because I am connected to people. As we think about the cross and the resurrection, it makes us realize, hopefully, if you have put your faith in Christ, it realizes you have salvation. But isn't it tempting to just kind of think about our salvation for ourselves? You know, I got my ticket to heaven. And you do if you put your faith in Christ who died and rose again. But we need to zoom out, and that's what our passage today does. Zoom out to realize that Christ's purpose in coming to die on the cross and rise again was the big picture. He came to build his church. We're connected. He came to build his church, and then he invites us all to be vitally a part of that process. As uh, we drop into the New Testament, we come into the world of, the, of, the, of Israel again. But now in a New Testament sense, Jesus spent most of his ministry uh, right within the confines of Israel, and we will find him in the first verse here, verse 16, in Caesarea Philippi. It's like the farthest north extent of where his public ministry was. And it's late in the three, three and a half years that he spent in a public ministry with his disciples. And he's about to make his last trip to Jerusalem. And that's where the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and that's where the crucifixion, that's where the resurrection all take place. But we start up north at Caesarea Philippi. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, so I'm picturing the 12 in particular, who do people say the Son of Man is? Referring, Son of Man was his name for himself. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So these 12 men have traveled with Jesus for over three years. They have probably listened to virtually all of his teaching and seen all of his miracles. But they have had crowds around them so that other people heard this but saw this and didn't get this. And so Jesus asking, you know, what are you hearing about me, about my identity. Who do people say I am? 
One idea was John the Baptist. One person we know uh, thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist, which would seem confusing because they lived at the same time, right? Except that John had been beheaded early in the public ministry of Jesus by Herod Antipas. And it was actually Herod Antipas feeling guilty about what he had done, killing John the Baptist, who when he heard about Jesus doing miracles and saying these things, he had this paranoid idea that somehow John the Baptist had come to life in the person of Jesus. Others say maybe he was Elijah because 800 and some years before, we've been studying about Elijah and Elisha, 800 years before, uh, when, when uh, he had been 800 years since he lived, but Malachi, about 400 BC, had said that Elijah would be coming, you know, like, uh, coming again in some sense. And so some thought maybe Jesus was that person. Actually, John the Baptist was the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jeremiah, in other, other prophets, people just knew that as Jesus was teaching, there is something so remarkable and authoritative that he, 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 maybe he's somehow come back to life as one of the Old Testament people. So Jesus says, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's often the first to speak up, did so again and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he was right. It's good when Peter is, is right. You are the Christ means you are the Messiah. The word Christ is Messiah. You are the one that the Old Testament was, was looking toward. You're the one that was the promised deliverer coming. Now they were thinking physical deliverer for Israel under the power of Rome. Jesus would come to be first a spiritual deliverer before he would be someday in the future a physical, political deliverer in his kingdom. So you're right about the Messiah. Secondly, you're right about the Son of the living God. Most Jews who saw this didn't get that figured out, but that's why Jesus did the miracles to establish that he really was God. It was God in the flesh doing these miracles. And, uh, and, and Peter got it. Jesus was not just simply a human deliverer. He was actually God in the flesh on earth. So, with that answer, Jesus proceeds to describe this bigger picture of why he came. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's, a, it's an amazing, affirmative response of Jesus to Simon, also known as Peter, Simon Peter. Peter, you said the, the right thing. Good answer. Yay, Peter. Too many times Peter blurted out something less than useful. But this one he knew. You are the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, you know why you know that? You know that because the Father revealed it to you. Because it's spiritual truth. Spiritual truth is truth, but it's invisible to many others. The most important truths are spiritual truths. When Jesus was talking to the uh, woman of Samaria... 
He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This morning, as we've been singing, we've been worshiping a God we can't see, a Savior we can't physically see right now. But we know he is very real. We weren't just singing about birds and butterflies. We were actually addressing a God the God who created the birds and butterflies and created everything, and the God who is the one who sent the Savior. We, we get it. But that's spiritual truth to worship. It's spiritual truth when we are in the Word of God. The, the, you, you've probably noticed different times when you're reading the Word of God or we're hearing it here or someplace, where it's like a light bulb goes on and we go, yeah. And our heart says yes. Do you realize that's a, that's a spiritual event? That's, a, that's, that's the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. It's one of the reasons why I, I really urge you to always have the scripture open. I just would, would hate for you to miss out on, on like a direct work of God in your life speaking to you. These are things that God reveals to us, spiritual realities. Peter got it. And so with that sense of understanding spiritual truth of who Jesus is, now Jesus could state, in a sense, the the. the big plan of God. What was Jesus here to do? Why was there Christmas in the first place? And so he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Fascinating verse. The verse has been used by many to claim that the church is built on Peter that Peter somehow is a specially unique, holy person, the first pope, that somehow the church is built on this man, Peter. But Jesus is not saying that. Let's see why. The name Peter is indeed uh, the word rock, uh, Petra or Petras, and it means rock. But Jesus is using Peter's name as a play on words to make a much bigger point than something about Peter. The idea is basically this. You are Peter. And just as your name means rock, the truth you just stated about me is the rock on which I'll build my church. He does not say, you are Peter and on you I will build my church. But you are Peter, and on this rock, this foundational statement you just made, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this rock, I will build my church. The church is built on the truth of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. And if he was anything else, there would be no church. There would be no point. Because it's built on him. So to venerate Peter, as important as he is, would miss the point because this is about the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's not about the greatness of this man, Peter. In fact, Peter would be the one in one of those early sermons in Acts 4.11 to quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, about Jesus being the capstone or the cornerstone. Peter would quote that. He, re- he got it. And then Paul would say it again in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of the church. So Jesus is saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it or stand against it. 
So what is Jesus doing today? He's building the church. Why did he come to earth? He came to earth to build the church. Why did he teach the things he did? To build his church. Why did he do the miracles that he did? He did them to authenticate who he was with the authority to build his church. So who is the church? We, believers in Jesus Christ, are the church. So that what we are doing today is the biggest thing happening in the world today. Not what's on the front pages. This is why Jesus came to earth, which was the main event of humanity, that he came to die and rise again. This is why. We're, we're like a local franchise of this eternal corporate purpose. We are, the, we are a family among the larger family. And so his church right now around the world is meeting. It's meeting in, in, in Ukraine and Russia, Senegal, Sudan, India, Indonesia, where Doug and Nancy are. It's meeting in uh, uh, Paraguay, the Keefs. It's meeting in where the Stouses are in the Papua New Guinea. It's meeting in every part of America. Probably every county in America is going to be worshiping today in churches. Several places throughout Port Washington today, Christ is going to be honored. It is the biggest deal because Jesus is building his church. And he's drawing us to to look at what he's about, not just in these personal, it's about me, but it's about Jesus building his church. So as we come together, serve together, support each other, pray for each other, this is what he came for. And the gates of hell can't stop it. That's a, that's a fascinating statement. The gates of hell or Hades cannot overcome it. Um, Usually as we read that quickly, we are picturing hell or Satan attacking the church. That's actually not the picture, I don't think. The church is attacking hell and Satan. In fact, this term about overcome or prevail, it, it simply means is not as powerful as. So I will build my church and hell's gates can't stop it. When you think about it, is a gate a weapon? No, a gate is a defense. You don't go out and fight with gates. <laughs> you, you use a gate if someone's fighting against you. These are hell's gates. Who's, a t who's on the offense? Who's on the defense? Hell is on the defense. The church is on the offense. And hell's gates can't stop the power of Christ working through his church. And so this is giving us confidence as we share the gospel of Christ that we are not on the losing side ever. Because Christ is winning one by one by one. Every time the gospel is proclaimed and someone puts their faith in Christ, hell loses another resident. Heaven and the church gain one. It only goes that direction. This week I had a, had a conversation with a woman who's been attending recently who just placed her faith in Christ during one of our worship services. And thinking, that's what we're here for. Because he is building his church. Now, when he stated it, he said it in the future tense, didn't he? I will build my church. Because as he stated it, he had not yet begun to build his church. When he stated it, 
it was still Old Testament times. He had not died. He had not risen. He had not ascended to heaven. He had not sent the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit would be the one by his coming that would launch technically the church. The church isn't in the Old Testament. Believers, indeed. But we are the church. So on that day, when the Holy Spirit came, Acts 2, who was it that declared the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first sermon of the church age? Peter. So, while on one hand, he is not the foundation, verse um, 18, he is the one who was first handed the key to the kingdom. I will give you, it's actually a singular uh, term, you, Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You get to open the church age. You get to be the one to, to, to pitch the season opener, <laughs> and, and you'll, be, you'll be very successful. And so in Acts 2, we read that first sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's introduced this way, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. The Holy Spirit had just come, and he says, let me tell you what's going on. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Savior you crucified will be saved. And how did that day turn out, that, that sermon? Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Boom! The church began. Because Peter was first handed the keys that would do what? It would bind in heaven what was bound in earth, loose in heaven what was loosed in earth. That's the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, that when we proclaim that faith in Christ, eternal life in heaven, is only through Jesus Christ, people are either going to accept that or reject it. If they reject it, they will, because of what they heard on earth, they will still be bound in their sins in eternity. And if they believe, they will be loosed from their sins on earth, forgiven and freed of their sins, and so they would be eternally in heaven. It, it puts an incredible importance on what we do as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has eternal ramifications. So Peter was the first to have the key, but then what? Then it went to the 11 apostles and go and make disciples of all nations. And, and so we have the key of the gospel today. Verse 20, then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. That sounds like, what? Why not? You know. I've added the little word in parentheses, yet. <laughs> he hadn't died. He hadn't risen. The Holy Spirit hadn't come. The church hadn't begun. But you guys, my inner circle, you know what's going to happen. And of course, then later on, we're told to go and tell everybody. So that's the big picture of why he came to earth, to build his church. How would he do that? I think the order in which the gospel writers put things are also inspired by God. And this is very, I think, obvious even, because he says, I will build my church. And he says, how? Through the cross and the resurrection. That's the big picture of the cross. He came to pay for our sins and rise again to build the church. From that time on, verse 21, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. 
cross. And on the third day be raised to life. The resurrection. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Again, remarkable conversation. He told them, I must suffer and be killed and then be raised. Jesus said this at least three times, this specifically, this obviously, to the disciples. We find it three times in Matthew, three times in Mark, three times in Luke. Probably recording the same three events, but if you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, you will come across this nine times. Several times the writers of the gospel will say that the disciples did not understand. But on this event, the first time he said it, evidently, Peter is the exception. He understood at least the first part. He understood that Jesus said that he was going to be killed. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you, or God forbid, or far be it from you. He took him aside, so this conversation was just Jesus and Peter. He's heard him say this. Maybe he realizes nobody else is catching on, but he said, i got to talk to Jesus about this. <laughs> you, you can't dare to die. And we get it. We, we, Peter had, had known, grown to know and love Jesus, and he didn't want him to die. But I think Peter quit listening at the word killed. I don't think he even heard the second part. He heard that Jesus said, I, I must go to Jerusalem and be killed. And his mind just went crazy. Like, that can't be. I don't know if he could have comprehended a resurrection because ab- resurrections are so abnormal. I've been part of quite a few funerals and so far I have zero exceptions to the permanence of death. This can't be. So after we just read how Peter was affirmed. Good answer, Peter. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got that right. Now suddenly he is rebuked for saying, wrong answer. Why did Jesus have to rebuke him by calling him Satan? Jesus, Peter had just made the most heretical, worst, destructive statement or lie that could ever be heard on this earth. To deny or repudiate the absolute necessity of Jesus dying and rising again would completely ruin God's entire plan for this universe. Because there would be no eternal life. There would be no church without the death and resurrection of Jesus. You are a stumbling block to me. If If I were to listen to you, Peter... It would completely destroy the triune God's plan. You are describing Satan's plan. Satan's plan was to block the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus had used those exact words speaking to Satan earlier in Matthew. Matthew 4, 11, when Jesus was tempted by Satan personally in the wilderness. Eat this bread, jump off this cliff. And then the one where he tempts Jesus to sin. I'll give you the, 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 the world and its pleasures if you just bow down and worship me. And, and Jesus had said to Satan, get behind me, 
Satan. It's a way of saying, back off, basically. Just stop it. And, and Peter now is suggesting he shouldn't die. And Jesus realized that would be the very worst thing. That would be what, a, what, what people would think, not what God would think. Because Jesus came to build his church to create his eternal family and the sin, the, de the de death on the cross for sin and resurrection was absolutely crucial to that plan. I think it's good for us sometimes to really think, try to think God's thoughts after him as we look at the really big picture of his plan. God's plan was, as he created the universe, to be glorified. By who? By people. So he created a universe in which there would be a solar system, in which there would be earth, a place where human beings would live. He created Adam and Eve, and he created them in such a unique way, he called it in his image. And the reason they must be made in his image is that they needed to be personal beings that could have a relationship, who could communicate, who could understand. And if you're made in his image, they must be given free will. Because it is, it, everything else in the universe would glorify him passively, but there had to be someone who would choose, not like a robot, but choose to glorify him. And so he gave them free will. But with free will, because nothing is whole, no one is holy but God, with free will, there would come sin. And so Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, as they put together the divine plan, knew that they would have to solve the sin problem as well. And there was only one way to solve the sin problem. The sin problem would have to be solved by someone who was perfect, and there was no one perfect but God. And because God had created this universe to put man in there so he'd have an eternal relationship with people who would know, love, serve, worship him, he knew that he would have to solve their sin problem, but God, being perfectly holy, would have to judge that sin, but God, being perfectly loving, did not want to destroy all those that he made. So the plan was to send one of them, and Jesus would be the one who would come to earth and put himself in a form that he could actually pay the penalty of sin because the penalty of sin must be complete and the complete penalty of sin is death. And so Jesus would come and he would take the penalty of all sin of all men of all time upon himself and he would die to pay for it. And so for all the centuries leading up until the time of Christ, death must be pictured. And so he gave the animal sacrifice so that the seriousness of sin would be understood and that, that death is the result of sin. But the death of those animals could never accomplish a spiritual thing at all. The death of those animals would simply picture or delay, not solve the sin problem. The sin debt would continue to accumulate but those who would believe that Christ, that God would someday solve their sin problem were forgiven and given grace, and they went to heaven. But it wasn't until Jesus came that all the sin of all the world was put upon him, and on the cross he paid off the sin debt of all who had put their faith in God's provision before him. All the sin on the credit card was paid off. And all the sin of all of us who would live after was 
prepaid as a debit card so that any who would put their faith in him in this age, looking back, would also be forgiven. Because on the cross, God put all the judicial, legal, spiritual guilt of mankind. And God the Father punished his own son, Jesus, the only perfect sacrifice. And that's how we can be saved. Because of the death and the resurrection. Because he not only paid for the sin, he could not stay dead. That would be defeat and there would be no accomplishment in that. But instead, on that third day then, the Holy Spirit of God would raise Jesus from the dead and give that human body that could die, give it eternal life so that he could then offer eternal life to all of us who would live ever since and all who lived before. And so Jesus had made this statement to the disciples three times, I must die, I must rise again. Because that's the only way we're going to build the church and populate heaven is if I do what has to be done. Paul would explain it so well after the fact to say that we are eternally saved by faith in Christ's death and for our sins and resurrection. 1 Corinthians. By this gospel means good news. By this gospel you are saved. So we, we know what this is about. This is what will save us from our sins so we can be forever in heaven. It's this and this alone. By this gospel are, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you believed in vain or you believed in something empty, worthless. You've wasted your time. There's a lot of people on this earth who are believing in something worthless religiously. Because this is the gospel that actually saves. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He took the penalty. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's how we are saved. Believing, trusting in Christ that he died for our sins and rose again. The gospel is what? He died for our sins and rose again. What's the gospel? He died for our sins and rose again. Period. Not died for our sins, rose again, and if you're a good person, if you go to, go to a certain church and you're baptized and you do all the... We're saved if we believe in Christ that he died for our sins and rose again. And Jesus himself had explained it. John had ex described it. He said, for God so loved the world, created Adam and Eve, that he gave his only, one and only son, Jesus, dying and rising, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because why? They have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's the only way to get to heaven. The only way to have your sins forgiven. The only way to have eternal life is Christ died for our sins and rose again. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Then the eternal punishment will kick in if we reject that he provided Christ to pay for our sins. So this is personal. The only way God create, Christ creates the church is that first of all, that individually we must make these decisions. So I urge you, I invite you to understand what it means to believe in Christ and ask yourself, have you done that? To believe in Christ is not just believing that he existed, but it means to put your faith in. To believe in it is to trust in it. So what are you trusting in? For eternal life. Are you trusting in you? 
or Christ. That's really the only two choices. If you're trusting in you, you're thinking maybe it's like there's a God, I think there was a Jesus, but I've got to be a good person, then I'll get to heaven. That's trusting in you. To trust in Christ means to realize Christ alone paid for my sin. I must in full humility realize I can add nothing to that. He died for my sin and he rose again. Period. And so I invite you to do that. You can do that in the quietness of your heart. Just If this is, if this is that time when the Holy Spirit is, is making that light bulb click on, just communicate. I'm a sinner. I realize you paid for my sin and rose again. I'm trusting in you for eternal life. Wouldn't that be a great way to invest this week? Is understanding and knowing for sure that you've put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Now, as we're reading through this, if you have any questions, by the way, about that, please talk to one of the pastors, or maybe if, you're, if this is new, you have somebody else you know here. We would love to make sure that you know and that you feel sure that you have trusted in Christ alone. You know, this, this would, on one hand, this, this is a great way to, to finish this, but it's not actually where Matthew or Jesus stopped this conversation. Verse 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, after explaining, I'm going to build my church. It's going to require the death and resurrection of Christ. He then challenges his disciples to invest in what he is doing. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You want to be a part of this? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Hmm. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's think about these things. He's saying that, I think the summary would be, you will experience the true worth of your life here and forever to the degree you invest in the main thing that Jesus is doing on earth, building his church. That's going to be the key to your purpose in life here, as well as what's going to matter someday forever in heaven to you. So if you want to come after me, you're going to deny yourself which is about sacrifice, and follow me. He calls it taking up his cross. He just talked about the cross, right? Jesus would die on a literal cross, sacrificing his entire life. So he uses that to picture, he says, so what I'm asking you to do is take up your cross. Now, people use that phrase, my cross to bear, as if it means anything hard in life. That's not how Jesus uses it. It's not just anything hard. It's things intentionally hard that we choose to do for the purpose of Christ coming to earth. It's intentionally hard, sacrificial choices to join Jesus in what he's doing in this world, building the church. So denying yourself would mean there will be some fun things you can't do. There will be some hard things you will choose to do. By default, we will do what is easy or what we believe benefits ourselves. This, I, I do this to enjoy this. I do this to have this. But we will not naturally 
pursue eternal things, just as Jesus had rebuked Peter. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You're just, you're just thinking naturally. So he says, let me tell you what supernatural living would look like. It's denying yourself to further what I am doing. You're a part of the family by faith in Christ. That's secured by faith in Christ alone. But as a family member, how are you contributing to the purpose of the church that Christ, Christ is building around the world? doesn't mean we don't have families. doesn't mean we don't have jobs. doesn't mean we don't have uh, hobbies and many things that we enjoy. But is our life focused on letting him lead us to how we will be sacrificially involved in what he is doing? That verse alone would make the point, but Jesus is talking to his inner circle. We're the inner circle now. He's talking to his inner circle and saying, let me dig a little deeper into how we all think. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. It's like counterintuitive that we, if you sacrifice things, you don't gain anything. Oh, actually you do. This is like, this is like motivation. It's like, it's like a coach saying, Olympic coach saying, you know, if you make these sacrifices and devote yourself to this skill and this sport, you will, you will get this. And Jesus says, if you sacrifice for my purposes, you are going to discover the true worth of your life. You will find that worth. Let's think this through a little clearly. How do you find, the word means to achieve or success in life. That's really what the word finding your life means. You will finally have success in life. You will achieve it. If you try to save your life, though you'll lose it. If you lose it, you find it or save it. The word save, the way Jesus is using it, we have to understand. This is the first clarification. Jesus is not using save here in the way that we used it a few moments ago, saved from our sin to go to heaven. The word save can be used many ways. And what he means really here is to preserve or preserve the value of your life so that it's lasting. If you guys have some fried chicken for lunch today, you might have leftovers. And if you want to save them for later in the week, you will probably wrap them up and put them in the refrigerator. Otherwise, you will waste them, and they'll be no good to you come Wednesday, Thursday. But if you, if you preserve them, then you don't have to throw them out. And if you and I want to save, preserve the value of our life, we actually have to lose or sacrifice. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will actually find it or, or achieve and, and enjoy it long-lasting. He, he probes it even deeper in verse 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, I bet almost every Bible that we're looking at has the word soul. How many have the word soul in a Bible you're looking at? Of course, it's on the screen. I put it there. Okay. It usually has the word soul, but here's the interesting thing. The word soul and life are the same word in the Greek language. So if you're reading this in the Greek New Testament, that's what it's written in. 
It's the same word. It's the word suke. And you come to the very next verse, nothing has changed. It's still suke. So we really should read this a little bit different and then grapple with what it means. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their life? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their life? In other words, he's still on the same subject. Don't waste your life. You'd be forfeiting the value of your life. What are you going to trade for the value of your life? Gaining the world? So, let me suggest a paraphrase. You can look at that verse or the one in your text. Verse 25, Whatever, whoever wants to eternally preserve the value of their life, life must, must sacrifice it for what Christ wants. Whoever does sacrifice his or her life for Christ is actually the one finding the true value of his or her life forever. Verse 26, What good is it if a believer like you gains what everybody else wants in the temporary world but wastes what you could have had eternal value of eternal value in your life? Or what would you dare to give, trade, or exchange for the eternal value your life could have? Don't waste your life. So after telling us about the cross and the resurrection, he says, let me tell you, I'm building my church and I want you to be a part of that. As you think about your schedule, your life, your family, your joys, your resources. Do, do you, where, where does this fit in? How does this channel your drive, your motivation, your purpose in life? What are you, where, where are the, the, the sacrifices, the investments, the, the priorities taking you? What, what are your relationships about? You? What is, what is your, your, your calendar about? What are those numbers about? And if you do make such a commitment, would you kind of have to go through life, well, it's my cross to bear, you know, it really is miserable. Or would you experience what he says, you're going to start experiencing the true value of what Christ has for you in your life. And, verse 27, far future. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. Can you imagine anyone being better at rewarding than Jesus Christ? The one who made the universe, the one who created everything that you and I admire and enjoy, He's in charge of reward making. And I'm not sure what it all is. I just know that I can really trust that his rewards for investing in building his church during this brief life would be utterly worth it. Verse 28 is kind of a transition to the next passage, kind of introduces the resurrection actually next week, but I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. As you think about what's next for you in life, we all kind of think forward. We think next goal, next stage of life, next purchase, 
maybe a different job, kind of what we want to do and enjoy. Or if we're starting to count down, you know, how many days are left, we've got that bucket list maybe. And as, as we think about that, I, I would guess if you put your faith in Christ, your ticket to heaven is really important. But is it bigger than that? How does God the Father, who designed the church and sent Jesus, how is he going to craft your priorities going forward? Because he wants you to join in this all-important purpose. And the joy of being a part of this church has been that you've, I see so many ways that you are connected, involved, serving one another for the causes of Christ building his church. It's exciting. What's next for you? Who, who, is, who is God uh, putting on your heart to invite to understand the good news of the gospel? How can you be invested in building his church for as long as he has us here till he comes to reward us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be a part of something so big. We can think so small sometimes and... and uh, Help us to understand the utter privilege it is to first be your child completely by grace through faith. I pray for any here who has not yet clarified their faith in you alone for eternal life. If they would clearly understand you'd lift any veil or distraction or confusion, that they would put their trust in you alone for eternal life. For those of us who have placed our faith in you, I pray that we would have clarity about how you want to use us for your eternal big picture purpose of building your church. In Jesus' name, amen.